Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. This week, to answer many of your questions from the new Reset the Podcast series, we have psychological well-being practitioner for the NHS, Jazz Thompson. She helps me take a deep dive into mental health, the brilliant support offered by the NHS and other services, and how you can learn to protect your own well-being. We discuss many of the key themes from the first five conversations of the series, the impact of suicide on family and friends, why being non-binary can be particularly emotionally challenging, how measuring our well-being and performance really impacts our behaviour and why going for counselling can help everyone. Jazz provides some expert advice on how we can all learn to cope when living in this state of constant uncertainty. And we also touch on how to support friends or family who are seriously struggling with their mental well-being leaving us often worried and unsure how to really support them. There's a list of resources attached to the podcast if you need this extra help. And if you've enjoyed our conversation today, please share it with your friends and your business colleagues. And please like it. And if you have any questions, just DM us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Jazz, so nice to see you. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. You know the question I'm going to ask you because we ask it all the time of each other. On a scale of one to ten, how energized are you feeling today? I feel good. I think I'm a an eight, a strong eight. Um, the weather is always a bit funny for me and it is a bit gloomy. So that's the only hesitation I have. Um, on the whole, I feel I feel good this morning. How do you feel? What's your school? Well, I have just done a PT session, hence I'm still in my gym kit. So I <laughs> always feel better for that. Um, and But you did give me your cold. So people who are listening that don't know, Jazz is my daughter. Um, I'm very proud of her, but she is one of our psychologists at Let's Reset. So one of the things we're going to do is um, talk about on a on a regular but infrequent basis, some of the themes that come up from the podcast. Um, it's something that I often ask you, David, Jeff, some of Kate, some of our other um, psychologists and mental health experts. But I, I find your answers so helpful um, that we thought that we'd try this out and share it with other people um, so that in time, if they've got questions that they want to ask, we can answer them. Um, but just before we start, um, and particularly for people who aren't in the UK and don't understand how the NHS works, tell us what you do and what that role is. Because you're a PWP, which is an unusual uh, an acronym for uh, actually your role and your and your job title. Uh, yeah, it's a bit it's a bit long winded, <laughs> but it stands for psychological well being practitioner, um, and essentially across 
across the UK in our NHS, um, our main um, service for common mental health difficulties is called IAPT. Um, and in the NHS, I won't go into too much jargon, but we use a kind of step care model. So we're at step two, which is for people with mild to moderate mental health difficulties, as I said, around kind of depression and anxiety. Um, and the work that PWPs do is all about giving practical tools to be able to help yourself. So it's really, really tangible, really thinking about the now, what kind of strategies you can put into the place to help you. Um, but as I said, it's part of a wider service service of IAPT, but we assess everyone. So even people not necessarily suitable for us, we do a lot of signposting, um, referring out, referring to the community mental health team, if that's the sort of specialist service someone needs. Um, so it's it's really, um, we really treat a variety of difficulties and support of people from all different backgrounds. Um, but we, we tend to be the kind of first post of call after the GP um, that people people come to um, and a lot of our IAP services you can self-refer as well so you don't have to just speak to your GP as well. That's really helpful and we'll come on and talk a little bit later on I think Jazz about you know when somebody is struggling a little bit particularly at work what can they do the places they can go to and how they can come at you, to you for help and support but the reason I love the work you do is it is for people you know like if I'm really struggling um, you have some lovely frameworks that are just helpful for me. I don't have to have a big mental health problem to be able to come and use your service. Yeah, it, exactly. It's it's for anyone. You know, we all struggle at times. There's always um, situations that make life just a bit hard. Um, so, you know, um, for example, at really relevant to let's reset work stress we do a lot of support for people struggling with work we have an employment team alongside so that's really helpful um younger people so although i act as an adult service some services the one i work for we take on young people from 16 so we do also help people with school stress and exam stress um and then obviously it gets to we also can support people with um illnesses that have been diagnosed but we're not a diagnosing service that isn't what we specialize in we specialize in supporting people through kind of concrete tools um, and I should have said this at the beginning our framework is all really based around CBT cognitive behavioral therapy which is all about how our thoughts behaviors and physical sensations all interlink and how we can break that vicious cycle Brilliant. Thank you. And you've done some lovely videos that are, that are on those people that subscribe to LR Plus and you're going to do some more uh, with some of those exercises. And we might touch on a few of those today. So I think, you know, the general feeling that we're getting from our workshops at the moment is it's quite a stressful time. I think most people have come out of COVID um, we've gone into this sort of slightly weird way of working that people are getting used to. Clearly, the economy um, everywhere globally is impacting people, different in different countries. Um, the weather for some countries, particularly the UK, bits of Europe are, are not quite so nice. Um, but I think that general state of uncertainty is what we're hearing through the workshops is leading particularly to uh, low scores on security and particularly around autonomy and control. Are, are you sensing the same sort of thing um, with some of the people that yeah. you're seeing? 
Yeah, it is. It's, I feel like it's a really interesting time because, you know, we're through the crisis of COVID. Obviously, we're now living with COVID. So it's still around and it's still spoken about, but it, it's less of a crisis state. Um, but there's still a huge amount of uncertainty, mostly to do with the economy, uh, job security with that as well. Um, and that's definitely what we're seeing as well. Um lots of people just struggling with financial stress or um, just housing difficulties, so many housing difficulties at the moment as well. Um, It's a really, really tough time. Yeah. And what can people do if they're worrying about it, if they are maybe even catastrophizing about it? Are there some tangible things that they can actually do at the moment to help them? It's it's a difficult one, especially when it comes to the economy. It's so out of our control at the moment. Um, so it is kind of that acceptance of actually what is in your control. You can think about your own personal saving. Um, that's really helpful. You can think about um, kind of the balance and also just reflecting on you know, if you're working, if you're able to work, that's really positive. You do have an income coming in. It's really focusing on the aspects you can control. But I think my main advice is if it is a worry and a actual concern to reach out for support, there's so many services that can help. Um, Mind Charity have a lot of housing support and financial support. Obviously, there's the Citizens Advice Bureau that can give support um, and also IAP services. So we obviously work with people with housing difficulties and financial difficulties as well. Um, so in short, I would say, you know, focus on the aspects you can control and making sure that, you know, you're not just focusing on work, you're having also a balance in life as well. Um, but if you do feel like you need support or if the anxiety and stress is becoming um, really consuming, then to reach out for support. Yeah. And I think um, what we what we know in the workplace is a lot of the HR teams have got financial experts in to come and do yeah. le- do talks. Uh, there's extra help in there. There's the the um, schemes that they might help to support employees now have financial advice as well. And I think it's always difficult, isn't it, to speak up, particularly about financials and, yeah. and money. We find it really hard. Um, but actually, just to go that first step and, and talk about it. Absolutely. And it's all relative. You know, everyone's financial situations are different. And, you know, some people, even people on high income will be struggling right now. And that doesn't take it away from people who are on really low income and maybe having difficulties with housing. Because that can sometimes be, I guess, a discomfort if you're thinking, oh, I'm really stressed because I'm having my own financial difficulties, but I'm not as worse off than some people. So that can sometimes be difficult. So I think, you know, obviously keep the perspective, keep the bigger picture, but do also take a step back and think about actually it's still important what you're experiencing, whatever, you know, whatever experience you're having. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that. Particularly we're seeing families with small kids really hard because, you know, it's it's hard to cut. It's hard to cut costs in those places. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jess. so since the beginning of the new season of uh, Reset the Podcast, we've we've had some quite pretty hard hitting sessions. Yeah. 
Um, it's been a really amazing series. Oh, thank Great you. Conversations. Um, so we started with Emma, and we started with Emma talking about her brother's um, death by suicide and taking his own life. Really, really hard, challenging. I so admire her. I think she's amazing. You know, I've admired her for so long because she's a brilliant CEO. Um, I think it's hard talking out about something. But I, I the, some of the questions that we've had since um, via DM and social uh, has been about if I'm worried about somebody close to me, they might not necessarily be suicidal, but I am worried about them. I'm seeing things differently, either at work or at home, and I don't know what to say. What do I, what do they do? There's There's multiple things people can do. It's obviously really difficult. We don't like seeing our loved ones in distress, but the the worst thing you can do is do nothing. I think actually asking people, you know, we say this a lot and let's reset. I know it's also come from um, Ronan Kemp and lots of documentaries, but asking how are you and actually really asking it, asking it twice. Um, or just saying, you know, I've noticed some differences. I've noticed that you're not going out as much. So I've noticed that when I call, you're not answering as much. Is everything okay? So really thinking, you know, saying something concrete that you've noticed and then using that to ask if you're okay can be helpful because it's almost pointing into a direction. It's highlighting an area of concern. Um, but if someone is really struggling or having suicidal thoughts, thoughts around harming themselves, um, it's then not your responsibility to fix that as such. There's not a lot you can do as a person. All you can do there is to support and point and signpost to the right direction. So that is really reaching out to professional help. So services like IAT, your GP, um, if someone is in crisis, it would be calling 111. But we can support each other in doing that. So they don't, the person then doesn't have to do it by themselves. Because I think sometimes mm. that can happen. You say, oh, you must talk to someone. And then they don't feel supported in doing that. Well, that first move is really scary. So yeah. asking people if they want support with a referral, support or just being present while they call a service, maybe being in another room, but still in the same house or same flat. So, you know, to still support with the journey of getting help, not just mm. saying, please get some professional help, because that can sometimes feel really, really daunting. Yes. And then when somebody then goes and asks for that help. So I think one of the I think there's two things. The first one is the all the scaremongering and, and some of the reality that goes on that the list so long, you won't get to any help because mm. there is no help to have. It takes mm. weeks. And, it, you know, if, if I'm feeling desperate or yeah, somebody yeah. close to me is is telling me that that's how they feel, uh, there's no one to go to because it's going to take me three weeks, by which time I, I can't imagine what might happen. Is that true? And what do we do about it? There is obviously a mental health crisis happening. There's there's no two ways to put that. You know, healthcare systems are really high demand working at capacity at the moment, there's starving, staffing issues. So, you know, we can't say, no, there's no problem whatsoever. But what I would say is the support is out there. And 
actually the NHS is so fantastic. We have so many services available. Um, there, there will be wait times for some places and it really does vary between counties. Um, but the county I work in, to get an initial assessment with a PWP like myself, um, we're booking in people the same week. So people are being seen as they refer. We sometimes, I've had calls with clients that have basically said, oh, have, I wasn't expecting you to call so quickly. Because I think, as you said, there is that expectation that it's going to be months and months. Yeah. Um, and in some cases it may be. I don't want to say it's not going to be, but, you know, there is help out there that doesn't take a lot of a, a lot of time to wait. Yeah. Um, and NHS, we also offer computer programs, so we can set you up with an online CBT to work through independently. It's really, really successful. If you're motivated to engage with it, it's really successful in improving mood. So again, if you needed some more specialist treatment, sometimes we offer that program while they're waiting, or it's an intervention in itself. So um, there is a lot of variety out there. It's just about reaching out and taking that first step. And then it's over to the professionals to come to a shared decision with you on what the um, most suitable treatment is. Yeah. So I know that um, every time you meet people, you, you do a kind of risk assessment. Um, if the risk assessment shows that people have suicidal thoughts, um, what happens? Um, it's a really good question. Um Suicidal thoughts are a symptom. They're a symptom of depression. They're a symptom of struggling. So they are really, really common. If someone's having suicidal thoughts, I think some of the expectation is, oh, they're going to be sent to a hospital or they're going to be locked away. Um, that that doesn't happen at all. Um, we're, we, we assess their risk, their risk to themselves. So we ask questions. Some people may find... Um, these questions difficult to hear um and obviously i know we did a trigger warning at the beginning of today but i am becoming a little bit specific here so please feel free to skip ahead if you'd like to um but we do ask the key questions are around intent so um how likely are you to end your life um if the person has any plans some people have thoughts that they may end their life but they have no plans their intent's really low. It's, it is a symptom of their distress. And with that, we obviously take it very seriously and it, we incorporate it into the treatment, put together a risk management plan. Um, but people experiencing those symptoms, we can still treat at step two. We can still treat at our, our level at low intensity. Um, those with suicidal thoughts that do have intent or maybe some plans, that's when things may be escalated. And when I say escalated, I just mean getting some more um, in-depth support. So it may be um, a, you know, it, it goes in stages, but the highest level. So if someone was really struggling there and now and they had really strong intent, then it may be the crisis team. But again, the crisis team give phone calls. They give home visits to, again, put together a really thorough risk management plan while waiting for treatment. It is very, very rare to be sectioned to go into an inpatient hospital. So um, that kind of expectation, I really want to make clear it. It's very, very rare. And if it happens, it's because that that's the most appropriate form of care 
for that person and lots of people will be involved in making that decision it's really kind of call it multidisciplinary there's there's lots of different services that come together to make that decision um what my second guest was ari and ari is it's just such an amazing person mm-hmm. uh, and they talked about well, a couple of things I want to cover with you but they talked about having suicidal thoughts mm-hmm. and in a way it shocked me quite a lot but then you know we, we spoke about it and as you say quite a lot of people have these thoughts they don't necessarily want to action them mm-hmm. but I, it, are there like a, is it like a percentage of the population is it is it something we should worry about it's it is a high percentage especially people experiencing depression um or other mental health difficulties um i think it's something that we need to really talk about and we need to actually normalize normalize that most people have intrusive thoughts and that can be in the sense of um suicidal thoughts so for example um, I'm sure you've had this thought. Most people do when you're driving and you think that if thought comes into your head, oh, I could just, you know, turn my wheel and crash into yes. off the road. Yes, or and crash it, into somebody else. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it flashes into your head and you think, whoa, what's going yeah. on? But it's just an intrusive, intrusive thought. Obviously, it can be very distressing. Um, But this is how some suicidal thoughts and thoughts to harm yourself start. They start as these intrusive thoughts and then you believe it a bit more because they're happening more frequently and more intense. So me and you, when we've had those sort of thoughts when driving, you think, oh, that's a bit bizarre. But you probably have forgotten about that thought by the time you reach your destination. Yes. But if you were struggling... And if you were in a really low place and that thought came to your head, you may infer it of, oh, actually, I may want to end my life. I want to hurt myself. Uh, Yes, I get it. I get it. Yeah, completely. That's really interesting. Yes, Mm -hmm. I get the same thing if I'm on a big mountain. But but you're right. (laughs) Yeah, and that's so interesting. And actually, the times when I've particularly been ill, you know, I spent a lot of time in Cornwall, I've never thought I'm going to throw myself off a cliff. I haven't had that thought, except that there's an element of I always wanted to fly off a cliff. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. that's just that's in my head. I, I would love it. But I know that I can't do that because I will not make it. But yeah. when I'm feeling low, the temptation is greater. Yeah. It's yeah. really it's- interesting. It's a interesting one. And, and, you know, I don't want to normalize it too much. No. It's obviously really serious and it's really distressing. Yeah. People who are having those thoughts, very, very distressing. But I just want to, you know, make it, you know, just help people understand that it is really common. And if yes. you're experiencing it, you're not alone and the support is out there and we can support you. So, you know, at low intensity, we do treat people with suicidal thoughts. It's not just for people who are in crisis because we recognize it is a symptom of the distress they're feeling. Yes, brilliant. That's so and as you helpful said, coming, coming back to Ari as well, yes. in, in his podcast, he's talking about the um, LGBT, the LGBTQ plus community. And actually members of that community, um, there was a recent study from Stonewell and, over half experienced depression 
three in five experienced anxiety. Um, and when they looked at young people, um, so between 18 and 24, one in eight had attempted to end their life. So those stats are for people from the LGBTQ plus community, just yes. a- across that community. Yes. Not just people who are not just uh, non-binary no. or transgender. Wow. So part of the full community there. Um, and there's there's multiple reasons why yeah. that may be, but we know that members of that community um, are at higher risk of experiencing mental health difficulties. And it could be because of discrimination, homophobia, transphobia, um, isolation, maybe different experiences coming out. Um, so it is something that as mental health professionals, we really keep in mind and we make sure that our services are as inclusive as possible so that we can help people from the LGBTQ plus community. Um, But as Ari was talking about, there's also a lot of fear that they are going to be faced with discrimination. So a lot of members of the community don't reach out for help. Um, And I found it fascinating listening to his podcast. I'd urge everyone to listen to it, um, the episode, because they also said that they were worried that if they did reach out for help, the mental health professional would think they were mad. Yes, I know. And that was really shocking to me. But is is that quite common? Do you find that some people, is that because of, do you think, Ari's background of where they grew up? Or is it because of the LGB because they're part of that LGBT plus community? I suppose it's different things. Yeah, it, it varies. It varies. It varies among different cultures, um, education, country backgrounds. Um, you know, the information we get about mental health really does vary. Um, but I think, you know, what we therefore need to really stress is that, okay, I'm not saying the you know, mental health services perfect. And there will be discrimination in places. There's discrimination everywhere, unfortunately. But there is a huge amount of work going into making services more inclusive. So again, the the trust that I work at, um, that we do a huge amount of work. We have many working groups for LGBTQ+. We have a Let's Talk About Race working group. Um, We also have... Um, we really make sure that our workforce is as inclusive as possible. So actually, people from the LGBTQ plus community or just cult- different cultural backgrounds, um, there tends to be therapists from similar backgrounds. So if they did want to request someone from the same background right. as them, we can offer that. And that's something that we're open to offer as well. So. I think that's something to keep in mind as well, that if you feel that, you know, I was talking actually to a colleague um, from the LGBTQ plus community, and even they were saying that um, if they were reaching out for help, they wouldn't want someone um, from specific sex treating them. And they would find it really, really difficult. And again, for the fear of being discriminated against. And I found that fascinating because this is someone who is a PWP themselves. They're from the background. And they reflected, they said, I know that we have such great training in it, but the unconscious bias that there may be is too scary for them. 
Right, right. But if people ask that and request it, so a bit like, yeah. you know, when we go to a doctor, we can yeah. say, could we have a female doctor or a male doctor? Yeah. We can, if we come and want some therapy or some help, it might yeah. maybe take a bit longer, but we can request somebody from a similar cultural or uh, gender background or whatever. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's really interesting Absolutely. to know. Um, mm. Because I think for me, I felt, I mean, Ari's so amazing, but that fear of getting help, even some frameworks that they might find helpful, um, you know, just might might help them a bit to live a slightly different life. Although they seem to be, you know, they're just doing so much <laughs> doing with their life anyway, things. you know, how no, cool is that? Absolutely. I think, you know, it's not about um, Ari as a specific person. No. I think it's actually what they're representing and the community. And that's what they were really talking about in the episode. Um, and I think that's what we need to recognise it is, it's a huge um you know population of people who are struggling and not getting support because they yeah. fear being discriminated against um so there's a huge amount we still need to of work we still need to do um but i know a lot of the clinical doctorate so for clinical psychologists um a lot of those courses are really putting a focus on um, diversity and inclusivity. So hopefully this new way, this new generation of clinical psychologists who will be shaping the NHS and shaping, you know, the way we work and respond um, will have such a positive impact. Yes, I hope so. I really hope so. Thank you for that, Jazz. Um so then this week we had Catherine talking specifically about some of the brilliant work they've been doing at Pearl and Dean. Culture is the thing for, <laughs> yes. for her, for her team. I, I mean, I love it. I love the fact that they can go to the cinema in the afternoon. I was going to say, if I could work for any company, it will be for Catherine. <laughs> yeah, I know. Absolutely. Um, and one of the things she, she did talk a little bit about the seven needs test. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that we, we get asked a lot is why do we use the test? Mm -hmm. and Why is a measurement tool a good thing to have? Mm -hmm. um, psychologically, why do we need measurement tools to look at our well-being linked to our performance? Yeah, it's the way we create evidence. It's the way we create research. So in order to make an impact with a study of any type, we need something to measure. So whether that be quantitative or qualitative, but with quantitative, so with numbers, with data, it's really easy to see the patterns. Actually, it's quite quick to do so as well. So I think that's probably why we do it from a psychological point of view, but also a scientific um, framework. But what's really great about having a measurement tool, and so for if you're getting psychological treatment, it's usually in the form of um, kind of call them MDS, so multiple data set questionnaires that measure your depression symptoms or measure your anxiety symptoms. And you get a number, essentially. And what we're looking for is the number to decrease during treatment. So using a tool like your seven needs test for Let's Reset is really great because it means that you can track how you're feeling. So of course, we can all check in with ourselves, but it becomes quite um, subjective. And you probably remember bad things more than the good things sometimes or all the other way around. If you're really trying to stay positive and you remember all the good things and the bad things are just kind of creeping up a little bit. So what I really like about the test is 
you know, it does cover different categories. It's not just looking at one area of performance or one area of well-being as such. There's, you know, the creative outlet. There's the sense of purpose, the security, um, and also physical and mental well-being. So it looks at kind of your how how you're feeling or your comfort in work as as a whole is quite holistic um and then through the app it sounds like a bit of a plug this doesn't it but I do really like it (laughs) genuinely that I like how you can review your scores you can see your past scores so if you're doing it monthly or even even quarterly you can see how things have changed um I've kind of, I think I've just gone on a tangent from the question, but um, the question was about, you know, how how it's successful. But I think that that's it. We can really yeah. measure it. And from a business perspective, you can look at the trends as, across the whole business. So we can report back saying, actually, people are feeling that they're scoring lowest in their creative out- outlet. What can we do to help improve that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Jazz. But I think your point about... We like measurement. It's it's yeah. so important, isn't it? And we and we do. And and linking it back to research is is really important. It's really helpful. One of the things that people say more than anything else is they don't have time. They mm-hmm. don't have time to look after their physical or mental well being, yeah. or any of the other things. <laughs> uh, you must get this a lot as well. What do you do when somebody says, but I don't have time to do any of this stuff? I need to get better, but I can't because I haven't got enough time for it. I always smile is what I do. I take a breath. <laughs> it's a, No, it's a funny one. And I, I understand it. I appreciate it. That feeling of feeling that you don't have time, especially if you have young children, you're juggling work, you're juggling lots of different responsibilities. Um, of course, it can feel like that. But um Something something that's quite good to do with this, and there is a kind of formal framework work to use, but you can you can kind of do it ad hocly, is kind of thinking the five top things that are important to you. So maybe categories. So it could be things like exercise, um, for me, eating well, <laughs> you know, family time, work, and um, I don't know, one more could be a um, dog my dog brilliant so then thinking about those five and then putting that five in an order of how much time you spent on each one so number one maybe work if you're putting everything into work children maybe two and then actually hobbies maybe right down at the bottom in terms of time and doing that um and then you do another list on so you've done what's important to you from one to five done how much time you're spending one to five and then step back and look at it and see how out of kilter it is so we tend to actually spend a lot of time on the things that are actually maybe less important to us in terms of what we get satisfaction and benefit out of and sometimes just looking at it in that sort of perspective is quite helpful of thinking okay how can I rejig my week So I may not be able to change my working pattern. You know, that may be set in stone. But actually, painting is really important to me. Yeah. So how can I fit that in the week, even if it's just an hour in the whole week that I just paint? That can make a real difference. So it's not thinking about 
making a complete drastic change that where you're completely changing yeah. your whole routine it's thinking okay what is actually important to me and how can I fit in time for it how can I make time um for me personally getting a walk in is so important and I go for a 10-15 minute walk in the morning and then a half an hour walk at the end of the day it's not a huge amount. I could definitely do more. When I can, I can do it at lunch as well. But that is kind of my baseline. Yes. Yes. And I think, okay, if I can just do that, then that is a success. And then anything more is a bonus. So thinking about it like that as well can be really helpful. What is your baseline? Yes. And then how can you maybe do a little bit more on the days that are, you know, yeah. there are freer time? Yeah, absolutely. I I try and work mine whether I'm going to the office or not. Yeah. Um, I'm obsessed about counting steps. But I think the bit about <laughs> a bit about looking at the time that you actually spend, because I think that's good in a positive way as well. Because sometimes yeah. I think, you know, all I do is work. Yeah. And actually, if I look at my week, I don't yeah. just work. I do do my exercise. I do yeah. eat healthily. I am making time. And I think it's it, that's a really good thing to do mm-hmm. I really like that mm-hmm. and then the other one jazz is is behavior change so yeah. then the other thing we we get a lot is you know uh my favorite boom and bust I'm a great boom and bust person as you tell me a lot <laughs> um, but you know we start with the best intentions yeah. we do massive amount of exercise or we do our new creative mm-hmm. thing and then we stop yeah how do we get that consistent you know do it all the time the knowledge of the boom and bust cycle is like is the best starting ground to actually be aware that you tend to do everything or not much at all or even that's how you do your week so monday tuesday are really high powered you're fitting everything in you're doing all your face-to-face meetings you're doing you know things after work because you're in the office and then you're socializing afterwards and then by the time you're home on a wednesday you're exhausted and you're doing the bare minimum and then you feel flat. So, you know, being aware of that cycle is really, really important. Um, And then again, similar to what I said before, it's about the balance. So really stepping back and thinking, okay, how can I structure my week? And sometimes it is helpful to look at your your timetable, your diary as such, where, okay, block out where work is, but also see what you're doing around it. So there will be the kind of necessary things that need to get done or the routine, like cleaning the kitchen and all those (laughs) bits and pieces. But also, okay, what are the nice things you're doing in the week? What's there to look forward to? And just making sure that it's spread out. It's not kind of top heavy or bottom heavy. Um, something that's really common, especially in young people, kind of young professionals, is working through the week and then just going really hard at the weekend. Yes. <laughs> doing all yes. the socializing, drinking as much as they can, seeing as many friends as they can. So they're starting Monday on the low. The bust is Monday, Tuesday. Yeah. And then Wednesday is always a bit of a hump day anyway. And then Thursday and Friday are better. Then <laughs> you do it again. Yes. And then you realize months have gone past and you're in this cycle. Um, so, you know, if you can catch yourself and you're aware this is the cycle you're in, that's when you can step back and start making some changes. Yeah, I love that. And I and I think you're absolutely right. I see so many young people doing that cycle from the weekend. And particularly if, you know, 
we're the other way around, then you actually get really big disconnect. Um, yeah. And, yeah. But it's, and so it's quite interesting that yeah, you know, it's not only understanding what you do, but what the, yeah. your colleagues around you do as well. And I think about we, we mm-hmm. often now think about hybrid working. Are you in the office or not? But we don't mm-hmm. think about, you know, time of the day. I'm yeah. a great, great fan of understanding if people are a lark or um you know or an owl and what time of the day do they like working but also you know which days of the week because we can then make sure that we that we fit that together in in a good way no I I think that's such a good point and it's again it's important to recognize that and have conversations together about it because also you can then think about how you structure your work day so for me, I'm so much better in the mornings. So yeah. I do the aspects of my work, which which require the more brain power for me. So when I was just doing clinical work, it'd be my assessments in the morning because there's so much information I have to get out and, you know, um, a lot of different skills you're utilizing at the same time. Do that in the morning where I'm feeling, you know, really fresh, awake and um yeah I'm performing really really well and then the things that actually don't require so much mental capacity so maybe sending the letters doing GP letters for example doing that towards the end of the day Um, and I found that that was a good balance for me when I started I was kind of doing kind of the framework that one of my colleagues gave me which worked great for them and that was back-to-back treatments and having like admin at the end of the day but I was so drained and I could never switch between patients very well it just it just wasn't working for me but again when I was able to step back and think actually how does my brain work where you know when am I my, my most productive when am I my most energized actually when am I struggling my three o'clock block I still haven't found a way to get over that <laughs> at all but once I do, once I find a way, I'll let you know. Um, but yeah, once you know, once I got that understanding, then I've been able to structure my dances in a much more productive way. Yes, yes. I mean, I think the other thing is uh, you're dyslexic, and mm-hmm. you know we talk about this quite a lot. Uh, and I think we, although we kind of understood it, we we were very late to understanding the impact, and you manage it brilliantly, mm-hmm. really brilliantly. Um, how does that impact you on your on your working week and what kind of things do you do to help yourself because I come across now quite a lot of people are dyslexic Mm. and they go oh well you know I'm not very organized because I'm dyslexic Mm. or I can't do that because I'm dyslexic but actually my observation of you is you can do everything just do it slightly differently that's not quite true but yeah you you find things that work for you but the, the aspect I find fascinating with dyslexia and other learning difficulties is at school if it's caught for some people it isn't caught early I was lucky that it was caught really early so I got a huge amount of support through school um not all the support was super helpful but um <laughs> but there was support there was a lot yeah. of conversations yep. I got extra time in exams I got yep. a quieter room for exams that was the same in the university I got extra tutors I, I could have someone to proofread my essays if I wanted to um and because it was such a normal way of life for me when I started work I didn't even think about my dyslexia there was not one part of me that thought it would impact me because I kind of felt like it wasn't impacting me through school and uni, but I was obviously getting a lot of support and some adjustments. Mm. Um, And then starting work and the nature of 
the job it's very fast paced it's high volume as well there's a period of time I had 80 clients at, at one point so it's quite a lot to juggle um, yeah. for anyone and I realized that actually my dyslexia was the thing that was causing me stress it's the thing that was stopping me from doing things as quickly as other people and I was getting so frustrated because I thought you know I, I I can do it so I'm I'm competent I know that you know I'm, I'm pretty good at my job but nothing was getting done quick enough um and then it was talking to someone who in our team actually one of our um diversity leads and she was saying you know do you have any learning difficulties and I said yeah well I'm, I'm dyslexic but that doesn't matter and she goes Jazz wait you're dyslexic your brain works in a different way your processing is different um and something to home in on is everyone's learning difficulty is different so with my dyslexia it is about my processing um my reading my um that's that's really where I struggle. And again, it's about um, building um, when, as I was saying in my day, by the end of the day, my brain gets a bit more tired. Obviously, everyone's does, but I can really feel it. So it was for me thinking, okay, how can I create a structure that makes sense to me and counteracts the difficulties that my dyslexia gives me? So when I was able to do that and make the key adjustments, um, and for me, organisation is my saving grace. Um, I need to be incredibly organised and my poor supervisees probably find me very frustrating because I think I then <laughs> try and enforce it on them as well. Um, but it's the thing that helps me manage and helps me juggle lots of different things. So I do a lot of lists. I have my whole diaries color-coded. It's, for some people, must look manic, but for me, it works. Um, but the key thing I wanted to kind of highlight is anyone who has a neurodiversity, they also have a superpower that's attached to it. So I think for me it is probably my organization and being able to juggle lots and also um, be, because I am quite structural minded, um, I have quite good leadership skills I've newly found. So that's really exciting for me. And I've had some training on my dyslexia now, so I do really understand it. And for some people, they may be really creative, so they can create amazing visuals Um I know, you know, obviously my brother who um, is on the autistic spectrum, his brain is just so incredible. And for every hardship he may have or difficulties processing some aspects of life, he has 10 different skills that are so unique. His ability to just, <laughs> I could go on a tangent now, about <laughs> but you know, yeah, it's, it's you know, we yeah. all have these aspects which actually help us to shine. So it's really about finding finding that and how we can use that yeah and then and then and I think this is then the last last thing that sort of goes into nicely into gratitude because mm -hmm. and David Beanie our lovely mental health one of our mental health experts yeah. uh who we adore we, we touched at the end uh, a little bit about gratitude mm -hmm. um why is gratitude so important why does it make a difference what does it do to our brain um, to put it very simply, it makes us feel good. 
<laughs> it you know it fires off the dopamine the serotonin that you know the happy hormones that we need um but i think the reason why it is so important is when we're feeling anxious when we're feeling low the the aspects of life that are negatively impacting us becomes very sticky and what i mean by that is it it sticks to us we we think about it a lot of the time so you may get a negative thought that pops in such as oh, i'm not good at my job and that sticks there if you're feeling good and you have that thought of oh, i'm not very good at my job because something went wrong you're more able to just brush it off and think oh it's a bad day but when you're feeling depressed or when you're struggling with anxiety it will spiral and it will linger but by practicing gratitude thinking about things you're grateful for or um what i do what i do a little bit more than that is probably just thinking about the good things from the day yeah um i know what we've been doing and actually with uh, my granny which has been yeah. lovely doing our one second of the day oh it's lovely and anyone so it. anyone who doesn't know about one second a day it's a brilliant <laughs> app on your phone and you take uh, usually most normal people take a video that's a second of their day and they put it onto the app and it does it all itself. Mm -hmm. uh, my mum, your granny, <laughs> she takes photos from the whole family and yeah. pulls them all together. So at the end of each month, we can see what basically all my cousins and my nieces, all done. nieces are done, <laughs> which is so gorgeous as well. But it's a lovely way. You get to the yeah. end of the month. And I sent it to my yeah. friends to say thank you for being part of my of my month. And yeah. it's made a massive difference. I love yeah. it. And I think what really, what it really showed to me is actually when I did it, I did it the year of COVID. Yes. So I did one yes. second a day throughout COVID. Obviously, it was a really challenging year for all sorts of reasons. But I came back and I watched back this year video, which is literally one second every day. And it looked like I had the best year of my life. <laughs> and, you know, you can see that in two ways. It could be a little bit, you know, rose tinted. But the way that I interpreted it is even on the really tricky days, there was one yes. moment that was positive. And there were some days, don't have me wrong, it wasn't all beautiful beaches the whole time. I was living in Cornwall, so there were some beaches. But, you know, there were some days that it would just be my dog. There was a lot of my dog. But she makes me happy. So yeah. it's just recognizing those small positives of the day. Yeah. Even, you know, the days I was in bed, I think I had a video of me crying at some point. I was in bed all cozy watching my favorite film. So that's a positive in some yeah. respects. I was yeah. processing something. So I think you can always turn it into a positive if you want to, but it does take time. It takes um practice as well yes. and when you're feeling low it's harder to do that because you have got so many more negative thoughts and it's interacting with other aspects which make it stickier so you know I don't want to again sound very blasé that it's very easy to just think positive because it isn't but if you can start by just thinking about one good thing of the day or capture it, capture it with a photo or a video that can really help like train our brains to think in a bit more of a positive light. Brilliant. Yes, I agree. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you, Jazz. Lovely, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for talking about some of the issues that have come up in the first few episodes. We're going to meet again before Christmas. So anyone listening to this who's got a question uh, for Jazz, 
give it to us in advance because then you can think about it, but you can also ask some of your other psychologists that you work with and clinicians. So, um, yeah, thanks very much. And also always lovely for me to see you, even if you <laughs> don't live with me anymore. It's, uh, it's lovely to see you in your apartment. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I've really, really enjoyed today. And I think it's so nice kind of rounding up some of the amazing speakers that you've had on the podcast, especially I think this series has been my favourite so far. Some great conversations. So I urge anyone to listen to the past episodes. Um, They've been brilliant. But thank you for having me. Thanks, Jazz. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network.